0: Hello and welcome to the Coaching Podcast, coaching for success in sport and business. Your host is Emma Doyle, the energy and high performance under pressure coach who is a world leader in unleashing human potential. Buckle up for this high octane session. Let them have it coach.
1: G'day everybody and welcome to The Coaching Podcast. I cannot believe this opportunity to actually interview somebody who's sitting next to me. Not just that, not just anyone, but somebody I've known for 37 years. That's true. How are you, Chris Anstey? very
2: well and of course I arrived in Denver yesterday and it's been too long with COVID and I'm in town. My my daughter plays for UCLA and she had a couple of days off. So I jumped on a plane, came to Denver and... uh, Here we are.
1: Here we are. So we actually grew up playing tennis together. And isn't it awesome that the great sport of tennis actually is a way of building lifelong friendships? Isn't that
2: cool? Uh, Well, we called another friend of ours, Joe Sirianni, last night. And it's, it is, it's incredible. And I had a pretty successful basketball career. Um, I'll tell everyone, my best mates are still my tennis mates. They, (laughs) they, They knew who I really was. They knew me before sort of publicity got involved with what I was doing and mm. uh, I still love the game. Um, I've started tennis lessons again. I'm using that to get fit since COVID and you know, every time we chat on the phone, we joke, we should record this as a podcast and
1: we do here we are. And here we are. He's very modest, my friend, Chris, uh, because he also has worked with a number of tennis players as well. So coaches out there, you are in for a real treat. But you know what? We are going to do the formal five questions on the coaching podcast. And I'm going to totally mix it up uh, with our pattern break first question. It is coriander. For Americans, cilantro. You either love it Or you strongly dislike it on a salad, in a burger.
2: I don't care. Really? I've heard people say it tastes like soap. I've had it. I can miss it. I don't mind. You don't
1: mind either way. Um, So normally we go with the Vegemite question, but I thought maybe
2: that's too... Well, Vegemite's incredible.
1: Yeah, (laughs) too obvious an answer. That's why I was mixing it up. So look, because you answered that way, our follow-up question is, could you share with us a coaching moment you can choose that went really well and what were the lessons or it went really badly? Actually, no, I want one story of each because there's one thing I know about this guy tells a brilliant story, <laughs> yeah, one you, of each.
2: We haven't planned this at all. We literally walk upstairs. Um, the, the bad ones, I suppose, when I had the opportunity to coach professionally in, in basketball was only... Three years after I started coaching, after I retired, and I had the opportunity to coach a team called the Melbourne Tigers in, in Australia, in the National Basketball League. And there were still some of the players that I was teammates with who were playing. And the problem with that, of course, is that A, I had to prove myself as a coach. I felt like I needed to prove myself as a coach. And I think the worst thing you can do is try to prove your ability to coach. Mm-hmm. And the more I tried to prove that I knew what I was doing, the worse I became. Yeah. Um and at the same time, they knew what I was like as a player. So I became, am I allowed to say full of shit? Yes, yeah. yes,
1: totally. Um, and,
2: and it just became a little bit messy. But there's a saying that one of the famous AFL coaches shared with me when I caught up with him. He said, anything you walk past and accept on day one of your, of your job, you need to accept for the duration yeah. of your tenure. So if you don't cut it out, let people know it's not acceptable, That's not the way it works on day one. It's really, really hard to fix it. So you really need to instill a culture, at least a standard of behavior on the Mm. first day you walk in the door and not try to please people. Mm. Um, When it comes to to things that have gone well, I I think the things are, they're hard to share because they're so personal
0: Mm. And,
2: and maybe, and I've got a few around tennis, but they're more about situational moments. But With basketball, I've been coaching women's basketball now for five years. My daughter plays and I got into into women's side of the game that way. But I've always found that that female athletes, in my experience, hold on to negative criticism more tightly than what male athletes do. And I may be completely wrong, but I had a, a really talented player that I was coaching and she just wasn't herself for a couple of weeks now. My assistant coach told me when I started, he said, they don't care what you know until they know how much you care. And we've all heard that. Mm-hmm. And so part of the first month and maybe year of coaching female athletes was to let them know I was on their side mm-hmm. and that let them know they could trust me. And I wasn't the sort of coach who was going to drive them to do things that they're uncomfortable doing. There was always a why. Mm-hmm. So this really fantastic player that we had, just wasn't herself for two weeks. And I finally walked up and I said, "Yeah, we, I pulled her out of it. I said, how are you doing? Mm. And she kind of had the courage to sort of say, nah, no, I, I'm not good. I, I, I don't want to do this. I don't think I'm very good. Mm-hmm. Uh, and my head was like, really? What do you mean? Mm. And she said, oh, a few people have said that. And they she started to list what she they told her she wasn't good at.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: and my whole thing is who because people say people said to anyway so she told me I said let's go for a walk and in the middle of training I said to my assistant coach you take it we're going for a walk and she's looking at me like what are you doing and I walked around the stadium and as close to holding a player's hand that I'd literally guided her around the stadium and I found a mum that I knew knew who she was the player because mm-hmm. her, her and her daughter had watched I said, hi, can you tell me what you think about X? Yeah. Mm. And, oh, we love watching her play. She's such an incredible athlete. My daughter loves her. And mm. I said, oh, good, thanks. I went and found someone else. What do you th-? And the story goes, I found 10 or 12 people who were all, the, the, their admiration of her was so high and their respect. And, and she's looked at me and said, stop. I'm like, I could do this all day.
1: Mm.
2: I said, but you've chosen to hold on to one negative comment. I challenge you to change it. Hold on to these 10 and let go of the one because we hold on the negative criticism to- so tightly and deflect positive affirmation. And it should be the other way around. Yeah. So th- my, my challenge to anyone is that, and, mm-hmm. I, and I think especially in women's sport, mm-hmm. um, hold tightly the people who compliment you mm. hold tightly the positive affirmation you get. And when there's someone who doesn't see in you what you do or what those, do, those close to you do, mm. let that just slide off. Yeah. And I, I just think there's a much greater chance of achieving success or personal best. Mm-hmm. If we frame our mindset to reflect that.
1: Totally disagree. <laughs> <laughs> just kidding. Just kidding. I uh, I couldn't agree more. And yeah, I mean that that always fascinates me. Why, you know, getting to the root cause of why that happens, uh, I think is important as well. So thank you for sharing that. Our next question is called the sliding doors question. Right. Your career has has had plenty, but there there sounds like there's there's one that stands out already. It was just changing
2: changing sport. Yeah. Um it was that yep. I, I loved playing tennis, I was yep. pretty good at it.
1: Mm-hmm. Um he was and, my double's partner for many years.
2: <laughs> um but I, I filled in for my brother's basketball yep. and I told him no that many times. And finally mum made me do it. And it was a mm-hmm. five-minute drive. I'd never seen the game, never played the game. And I in the years since when I've learned a little bit about more what I was actually feeling, I, I that sinking gut, the feeling you get in your gut when you really don't want to be where you're going. Mm-hmm. I had that in the car. Mm -hmm. I really didn't want to be there. And I was only, not only, but I was 17, nearly 18 years old. And I'd never never responded well to that. And somewhere on the drive, I thought, well, I might as well try. And it sounds like such a simple thing to say, I might as well be my best. Mm. And all that meant for me was running as fast as I could up and down the floor and trying. Because I I call them kicking rocks days. The days you wake up and you're just kicking rocks. You can't be bothered. You're dragging your feet. And you actually choose not to be at your best. And so I tried. And it so happened that in the dozen people that were in the stadium that day, one of them was a junior basketball coach from the Melbourne Tigers Basketball Club who'd never seen me play before, clearly. But I stood out and I'm seven foot tall. So I'm going to stand out whatever I do physically, which is good and bad. Because if I'm lazy, I stand out. Mm-hmm. But if I do something positive, I also stand out. So I stood out in a positive way. And A, it was a sliding moment because I, I figured I can do this. I played this really good game. But the second part that I learned later on was you just never know where your next opportunity is coming from. That they're everywhere. And I could tell you a million stories about players that I've seen miss opportunities that they never knew existed because they weren't at their best the day that they were getting evaluated Mm. because it's easy to bluff your way through being your best. If you know, someone's watching, um, but what do you like every day? What are your habits? Like, what are your behaviors? Like I think they're the things that make you successful and even leaning on my own experience of making the most of that one opportunity when I didn't want to be at my best. That's what I look for Mm. in athletes that I recruit is that I'll sneak in or have someone that is unrecognizable, evaluate their behavior and evaluate the way they treat their teammates. And so for me, it was, A, it was a sliding door moment because I got invited to start a sport I never dreamt of playing. But, but secondly, I learned so much about why the opportunity existed and I've carried it with me literally every day since.
1: Mm. I love that about you just never know who's watching. And I think you once said to me, I was running a team building workshop with uh, an elite scottish nepal team around culture mission etc and it was you who because i was doing some research on other great organizations that have really good mantras and things like that and i'm pretty sure i called you because it was a fair few years ago and you said what you have to get to the bottom of is what they do when no one else is watching or something right. like that you had something really so there, there so, catchier there, than that
2: there are so many sayings about the work yeah. you do in the dark Become apparent in the light, and oh, that, and, I
1: think and, that was it, yeah. And, and yeah. I, I love,
2: yeah. I love sort of I love the sayings and the quotes because mm-hmm. they're easy to remember. But as long as you know how to apply them, because otherwise mm-hmm. they're just words, just words. Um, but mm. but there are so many, you know, with, when the, there's that real moment that you need to be at your best, you don't rise to the occasion, you revert to habit. And I think that's a really really important one that mm. you can't hope that you perform at your best. You when pressure comes or emotions involved. You do. You go to what you've always done. Yeah. And people always ask me, and one of the things I'm most proud of in my career is there are a couple of times I won grand final MVPs and we won championships, and I was able to perform as well as I could have possibly performed when it really, really mattered. Because that's all I knew how to do. Mm. Because every single day I trained, I wanted to be the best version of me. I want, and I, I was a little bit selfish. I wanted to be better than everyone else too. But there was a responsibility attached to that that. It couldn't just be when they're around. I had to do it when they weren't around. And there are only, honestly, a handful of people I came across in my career that I look like, I can't do what you do. And one of them was Steve Nash. One of them was Dirk Nowitzki. I'm proud of the fact that I I sit comfortably here knowing I became as good a basketball player as I possibly could have because I did everything I could.
1: Mm, mm. Great lesson for coaches and players listening love that uh you know my holy grail question of coaching I've asked you before but I'm going to ask you officially on the coaching podcast in one to a maximum of three words what do you think makes a
2: great coach ability to listen again it's not proving that you can coach it's having a genuine care for the players and a genuine understanding of who they are as people and I run workshops and I do them corporately as you do. And we've both sat in rooms and we've asked people the question, if you were to think back to the best mentor leader leader, coach you've ever had, Mm. normally people, one person jumps to mind. And normally it's sometime in those late teens, early twenties years. It's just, it just happens to be that they're our most developed, developmental years. But if you go a step further and you say, describe that person in one word, it's never got anything to do with skill technique it never does yeah it's it's always got to do with how they made you feel Mm. or how they empowered you so the quicker we get away from trying to prove that we can coach by imparting knowledge and show that we care about their improvement their well being them as a person Mm. then we can teach them anything Mm. because they know we care and only then can we really drive them to be better Mm. because they know it's coming from a good place. If we just yell at them and demand things from the start, Mm. there's a level of distrust. There's a level of unwillingness to really completely buy in. So uh, no, it it, it was just that, that part was really, really important. And it's even more so when I went from coaching boys to girls. Mm, mm. Yep. Uh, So
1: interesting. We could, to yes, do a yes. whole podcast on gen, subtle gender differences. Um, maybe we'll touch on that a little later. But uh, the next question is where we ask you to ask us a question.
2: Well, what do you look for in an athlete or a person?
1: Mm-hmm. Or a team member, w- client. W- whatever yeah. it is, mm-hmm. what, what do you look for? Mm-hmm. A-
2: and oftentimes they're the intangible things. Mm. Um, the really easy ones, and I've been around basketball for a long time, but I think it relates to to most sports, is speed size and space can uh, are you fast can you create uh, do you have the size or strength mm-hmm. to be powerful or to mm-hmm. impart power on your game and can you create space mm-hmm. and creating space in tennis is getting your opponent to corners and moving around and controlling the point controlling space in basketball is the ability to shoot the ball so the defenders need to be closer to you which allows everyone more space to exhibit their skillfulness um but you want to know about personalities. I don't like recruiting players who've been on five teams in five years because I wonder why mm. um, I like loyalty. I like hard work. And that, I mean, I know it goes back to, but when I've asked my opinion, sort of been formed by that asking coaches that question, but at the same time, it's, it's asking employers that question because mm-hmm. so much time, effort, and money is wasted on recruitment and re-education Because teams and businesses recruit the wrong people. They don't ask the right questions. So I think you really need to get the right person because we can teach a person any skill. We can't teach them to be a better person. It's not our job. Mm -hmm. So we need to recruit the right people with Mm -hmm. the right skill set. Yeah. With
1: character. Sure. Great character traits, I think.
2: Yeah. But but different. At at the same time, as much as we say that, I love difference. I I love Mm -hmm. uniqueness. I love digging into people that are misunderstood. I, I love the. Ch- I don't know, it's not a challenge, but I, I love spending time with people who most people pass over because they're considered too hard mm. or they're considered too different or that whatever they're considered or stereotyped. They're the ones that fascinate me because I don't think anyone's ever given, given often, not ever. Oftentimes they've never been given the opportunity of time and understanding Mm. there's been there've been assumptions leveled at them unfairly they're, they're the players that i've had the most enjoyment coaching and helping them understand that i see in them what maybe they don't even see mm. because that's what i had i had that with it with brian Gordon, who saw in me more than i ever did but then he put in plan put in place a plan to go and do it it wasn't just words and um, so I know that's a really long that question is. to the three words. No. So what do I ask? You know, what do you look for? Yeah. And it's so multifaceted.
1: Yeah. So speaking of Brian Gorgian, why did he have such a, a positive impact on your?
2: For that exact reason. He yeah. cared about us as people and we would do anything. He could ask it. We learned a level of work ethic and work rate with him that we didn't know existed, but we only did. If someone asked that asked us, we wouldn't have done it but because it was him, we did it mm-hmm. because we knew he cared. We knew he wouldn't put us in a situation that we're going to hurt ourselves. We knew that everything he doing, what he was doing for us, there was a reason. And for that reason, we'd do anything for him. Mm-hmm. And we got proven time and time again, that what he was doing was helping us become the best versions of us. Mm-hmm. And he was honest with us. It took time. Um, like it always does, but he was a genius in that respect. And, but he was genuine um we had a we had a reunion not so long ago you know we asked who the, we, we went around a, a championship reunion who was your favorite coach and we all said gorge and then we got around the wine i went first i said well i was his favorite players brand new to the sport he could have told me anything and yeah so it was easy and he said get stuff i was his favorite no i was his favorite <laughs> well no, how did he do that
1: yeah and but
2: it's just the time he invested in you away and is the thing it's easy to invest time in your athletes or in your staff members at work or at training. But it's harder to do it in your own time, in your family time. But he integrated us into his family. Like he'd invite us into his home. He'd bring other teammates. If I was having an issue with a teammate or he got a sense, all of a sudden it'd be me and my girlfriend, that other player and his girlfriend, maybe six or eight of us, and we'd sit around a dining table. We wouldn't mention basketball. We'd just be there. And we turn up to training the next day and all of a sudden things were better. We didn't even talk about it, but he'd bring us together. And he was just a master of that, but he cared.
1: Yep. You've got to have that intuition, don't you? But of
2: course, yeah. he was very skilled at what he did. Of course. and course. He, he had all the right tools. Yeah. But
1: And he looked intense to me every time I yeah, watched him. And it. he was,
2: but the, the best yeah. message is irrelevant if it falls on deaf ears, mm. you know, and his message had to be heard. And it wouldn't have been if we didn't know he cared as much as what he did.
1: Yeah, for sure. I remember a story uh, in 1998 when I was traveling around the United States. I was in an attempt during that phase of my life to become the best coach that I could. So I was rocking up at academies in Florida, knocking on the door and basically saying, can I just... you know, have free food and accommodation for the week. And can I stand on the court, though, of the best coaches at the academy? And I want to learn the look. I want to see what they see. And all of a sudden I got a phone call or I called your landline. I can't remember. <laughs> but you said i am got front row tickets. I'm playing on.
2: I well, said so you've got front row tickets. I was playing. I didn't have front row <laughs> tickets. I was...
1: But who who were you? I
2: think it might have been. It was either Shaq or Hakeem Olajuwon, I feel.
1: O'Ne- I think it was O'Neal. Yeah. Uh, and the next thing you know, boom.
2: It's a long drive. It was a
1: long drive. New Orleans and also no GPS, just following the, the giant bubble of yep. all on thing top of the Dallas, stadium. Yep. And r- raced literally and sat down and, and got to see you play. So I'm curious, what was that like?
2: I, I never felt in the NBA that I was the best, of course but I was trying to prove to myself that I belonged mm. because I'd only been playing basketball for four years and I was in the NBA Yeah, um, and I could do some things physically, but I was still learning the game. And my craft and my reads weren't the same as players have been doing it since I was five years old. And at some level it didn't mean as much to me because I wasn't coming from a poor family or I wasn't doing it to support my family. Um, I always felt that I was fortunate in the fact that if I got injured or got taken away, I'd be okay. Um, and I don't say that to belittle what I did, but it was, it was always a part of what I or who I was. Mm. But then you do, you get to games like that, like Shaq or Michael Jordan or mm. Kobe Bryant, mm. and it, it, it's different. Mm. But the best thing for me, and I'm reasonably analytical, and you play against Shaq. And people say that it was a lie. Mm. I'm like, I learned exactly what I needed to do to get better. Cause that was the best. And I was sharing a call with him. And so the opportunity for me to learn and to grow was right there. And I was afforded this opportunity. Not many people got mm. because oftentimes your coach will tell you, or you will hear about it, but you never get to experience it, you know, see touch, feel the best. And that's what the NBA was for me was I got to see and touch and feel it every day. Mm. And, I learned really quickly that I had to go to another level. And there's a whole another story about recreating yourself and doing things that haven't been done before. But again, I was seven foot tall and I had to learn to shoot because I wasn't built like Shaq or I wasn't built like David Robinson. And if I had to physically defend them and I was dead, so I needed to drag them away and learn to shoot. Now I've got a very famous ex-teammate, Dirk Nowitzki, who did that better than anyone in the history of the game. But he was built the same, but his touch was incredible. So for me, the NBA was, and again, it's something I've always carried it. Yeah, the, the embracing being different and trying things for the first time and don't just do things because other people have always done them. But at the same time, your improvement comes in your own time, not the team time. I think we touched on that before. It's, and Steve Nash taught me that. He said, if, you, if you're trying to improve your game at team training, you're selfish go away in your own time and improve your game and bring your improvement back to the team to improve the team. Mm. And that was really powerful because there are so many athletes and workers out there who will only work on work hours or training, training hours, and they expect to get better. And you've got others who are spending hours of their own time investing in themselves. And that's one of the best things I've ever heard. Just that quote, invest in yourself, find time with everything you do to invest in yourself and then bring that back to the group. Mm. Um, and so that long-winded answer to your Shaquille O'Neal mm. question, but it gave me a really, really clear understanding of what I needed to do to get better. And one of that was weight room stuff. Mm-hmm. and But that's what the best is and how strong That's what it feels like. Mm-hmm. I'm way off. Well, let's get to work.
1: Yeah, yeah. And with regards to motivation and the great resignation and or I like to call it the great re-evaluation, uh, This whole situation of attracting and and retaining talent in the workplace or keeping and coaching talent in a team, there's a lot of parallels that I see between what's going on now. And I think it does relate back to motivation, lack of motivation, lack of intrinsic being able to do that hard work on yourself. What are your top tips for maybe managers who are listening about how to motivate their staff and energize their yeah. staff?
2: What, are, I, I, what are your thoughts about I would that? say that if you need to if you need to motivate your staff, you've got the wrong staff. The motivation is so short-lived and, and fleeting that it will get you up for a day or a game, but it's not sustainable because you can't be motivated every day. But what you can have are incredible habits and behaviors. And they're the harder thing to change. So if I was a manager or a, a boss or a coach, and I was to sit down with a group of people, I'd be more interested in influencing their habit and behavior than I would be motivating them. I, I think motivation comes when you start seeing results and seeing improvement and you think, hang on, what I'm doing, I'm on the right path. And to become active learners, you know, to, to actively seek to get better all the time and again, it goes back to the recruitment. Did you What type of person do you recruit? If you're recruiting someone who needs to be motivated, you've got the wrong person. Mm. If you're recruiting someone or employing someone who wants to learn and has great work work ethic and has great habits, and I can improve their skill easily. But motivation gets really scary for me if we're dependent on it. Mm. It's what we
1: spoke about earlier in terms of a motivational speaker you were saying that uh,
2: you don't really believe in that. Well, tell me how much it impacts you five days after they've left the room. Yeah. Yeah, what's it really mean? Like New Year's resolutions. Right, they're they're gone. Yeah. They're they're, they're fleeting. Mm -hmm. Um, And Habits and routines. They make you feel good for a day and you give each other a high five, you have a beer at the end of the presentation and you go home to your family and nothing changes. You, you, You need to create change and you need, we make so many decisions every day, we can decide to change. And it's hard but you need people around you that can support you doing it. Mm. And you have to understand it takes time. And we are talking before about it's incredible what we get used to or what becomes normal. I mean, we're here in Denver, it's minus 17 degrees. There. I love it, but I lived in Russia for three years and I was minus 45 every day. I hated it, Celsius, but, but it became normal. Yeah. Um, and I got used to it and I adapted and it took time. And then you realize geez, if I can cope with that, how easy have we got it back home? And so I became far more grateful for things I had at home by, being, by living in Russia. That I never complained again. There's always perspective, but again, habit and behaviour over motivation for me every day.
1: One of the early habits I think that we both adopted back in our junior tennis playing days, if we can go back to that for a minute, would be a habit of rocking up at the club, <laughs> finding someone, whoever's there, you know, not necessarily even scheduling sometime, I And mean, we had team practice, of course, and, and McDonald's squads and et cetera. Uh, but often we would practice with whoever was at the club. Yeah. And there was a habit, wasn't there? And there was such a great atmosphere that we felt like we belonged and that we each had e- each other's back, either, even from a young age. I think that uh, Tyrell Harding is a someone we, and, and your dad, um, Ken Anstey, we should give, probably my dad too, a shout out yeah. to those influential parents that were
2: well, they got us there.
1: They got us there. That's right. Half the half the battle, isn't it? Yeah. Uh so you know, when you reflect back on those early amazing years and friendships that we built, um, Tam and Tennille and Joe, etc. Smon Priestley, shout out. Uh, what do you think was that sort of secret source that helped but you later in your career we
2: wanted to be there we didn't mm. have to be there i think it's simple we weren't doing it because we had to we're doing it because we wanted to and you know over the last number of years you've taught me about gamification and we won't go on it too far but look what we did like when we hit we'd put ball cans in corners we'd try first one to hit three then we'd i'd play in the driveway. one i'd be edberg against McEnroe, and then but it was fun we always had these little challenges and games. We're trying to break records and we got the real stuff as well, but we wanted to be there Mm. and we wanted to do it with each other. I mean, as great as we were as a tennis club, it was a time we spent at the Harding's house and the time we spent at your place and that, that tied it all together. But that goes back to what I said about Gordon. We cared about each other. Mm. It didn't matter how good we were as tennis players. We cared about each other. Mm. And I think that allowed us to bring out the best in each other. And we overachieved dramatically for how good we all, You know, None of us ended up mm. going on a play except for Joe.
1: Yeah.
2: But, you know, for what we did in those years, I, you know, with all the things I did in basketball, one of my most vivid memories is to let a special grand final at Strathmore Tennis Club. <laughs> and, and that was as much pressure i me ever been in. You know, three or, I can remember every point. And you know, I was playing mixed with Tam. Everyone was around the back. We were not winning six three, so we won on sets. But everyone came running onto the court. That was the biggest moment in my sporting life.
1: Yeah,
2: and it didn't mean anything to anyone other than us. But that—that's fine. That's all. It's got to mean something for. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm.
1: And staying on tennis for a moment earlier today, you and I were having a great discussion about micro moments of resiliency in tennis. Um, and basketball I'd love for you to just to recap what we're talking about in terms especially yeah. in terms of like being able to get over yourself like, you know when your ego gets in the way and like talk us through the the two sports and and also maybe how that applies but, to the workplace yeah
2: there's i spent a little bit of time around tennis I always talked about reset mechanisms and with tennis it's easier because point stop basketball's continue, you know continual sport but you know, I've asked different tennis players questions over the time and, you know, think of some of the best games you've ever had. And I came across 60% perfection in tennis and the only player in the history of tennis that's won more than 60% of their points over their career, is Serena Williams. So you think about that as a number, if you're, if you're mathematically inclined, the best players in the world only win 50 something percent of the points they play. There's not that much difference between the best and the worst. So The question is, how do you approach those moments within a game, the the big points? And you look at opportunities. And the example I love in tennis is if you're receiving serve, you play three incredible points, you get to minus 40, and then they battle back. And you're back to 30, 40. You've still got a break point. How are you feeling? Like, well, I've wasted two. I'm, I'm down. I haven't hit the last two well. And you get inside your own head a little bit. But you flip that where they've gone up 30, love, and you play these three incredible points to earn a break point and you're fine you feel good about yourself. I've just hit a backhand cross-court winner. I've got this break point. You're feeling up and about. It's the same opportunity. It doesn't matter how you got there. It's still 30, 40. It's still break point. Yeah. And, but our mind becomes such an important part of what we do. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, the ability to reset and recognize the opportunity in front of your eyes and play that moment and not worry about what's already happened, but continually reset, you know, in basketball, don't let whether you made or missed a shot impact how well you play defense and then vice versa. And you've got to do that on the fly, but it's easy to say, but I think it carries over into, we'll talk about relationships and without going too far, but we never make great choices when we're emotional and sport brings out emotion relationships bring in emotion and I've learned to walk away from arguments because there are some things I'd say emotionally that I don't really mean. But over the years, I've tried to win an argument. There's no point in winning an argument. It doesn't mean anything. I'd rather go away, even if the person I'm arguing with doesn't understand. And instead of the 10 things I wanted to blurt out because I was emotional, I'll come back and say, here are the three things I really want to say. And not that practically, but say, here's what I really mean. And have a conversation instead of it being an argument. And I think that's sport as well. If we can remove emotion by focusing on that process and the habits again, there's a much greater likelihood that you'll find the ability to be successful because your worst won't be that far away from your best. The only thing that varies is sometimes your skill and that's fine.
1: Mm. The other thing that I love in what you say and something I really believe in is that uh, emotion is really energy in motion. So, the quicker you can embrace that moment and then go back to that, you know, your ability to think or strategize or understand what you need to do in that moment and then trust the flow process, I think is, is really important, but tapping into the emotion gives you that, that passion and the energy as well. So it's, it's a fine balance, isn't it? Yeah, And
2: funny. I know you're big, but finding energy is huge Mm. and that's Mm. a huge part of that. But energy comes from enjoyment too. I mean, some of, I'll never forget as a kid, you're playing and you're not playing great. And then you just think, no matter what happens in this game, mm. I'm about to go work with my mates. We're going to do go to the shops or whatever it is as a kid. Like, how bad can this be? The rest of my day is going to be great. And you mm. find this, all right, I'm good. And then you play with that sense of freedom and enjoyment, which I think creates energy. You're not yeah. flat, you're not kicking rocks. Yeah, But no, I think energy absolutely creates that, Well, I'm not sure which one comes first, energy or enjoyment, but they're linked.
1: Yeah, they are. They are. Well, speaking of energy, we could go on for another five hours. We'll do it again. And I think this is part one. (laughs) We're going to have two parts to this podcast, I believe. Chris Hansie, I love you. You're my mate.
0: Let's do part two.
1: Thank you for being on the coaching. Thanks for having
0: me. The Coaching Podcast is sponsored by Transition Coach for Athletes, a global coaching, mentoring and U.S. college sporting scholarship placement service. Visit www.transitioncoachforathletes.com. That's the number four.
1: Well, welcome back to part two of the Coaching Podcast, Chris Anstey. How are you enjoying Colorado?
2: I'm loving it. Uh, The cold, the snow, the well, the Mexican restaurant and the friends, it's, no, it's, it's ironic. I've got a few people here. Yeah. So uh, it was nice to catch up with you guys and a few of the others last night. and uh, it's been great.
1: Yeah. And one thing uh, that my friend Chris does very well is tell a story. So storytelling for coaching, for metaphors analogies to get your point across is a very effective way to really uh, share, share something. And you and I were talking yesterday about when we do presentations um let's say it's in front of an audience of 500 people it's amazing what they walk away with so in our head we might have three main points but even what they they walk away with so start there for me and share when you you know tell
2: stories what
1: how do you do it what's the purpose (laughs) what makes a great storyteller let's talk (laughs) stories
2: yeah sure um I don't know what makes a great storyteller other than being authentic um, and having a a reason for telling it, but you're right. I think when you stand in front of a group of people or when you coach a team, every player or every participant is going to take something different out of the lesson and they're going to learn it at a different time. You can't expect an athlete to learn a lesson at the time you teach it. Sometimes it won't click for days, weeks or months. Um, But I think you need to be relatable. And I think, Teaching and storytelling essentially is giving the listener a perspective or an idea for them to make their mind up about. It's not actually telling them what's right and wrong. It's here's what I've, I've observed, here's what happened, here's what I learned. That doesn't make it right, it just makes it one way of perhaps seeing it. Um, and, and that's what I've found. Um, again, I can tell the same story to 10 different people and they'll have 10 different outcomes from it, or that some will think it's great, some will think it's terrible. I'll put some people to sleep, but. Um,
1: Just no, don't start it, snoring. Isn't well, it? well, yeah, <laughs> no.
2: it. well, it's, I don't know. It's, it's, and it, and it can, and it can become conversational. I think a good story is always conversational and you engage people a little bit better. So I like it when it comes to coaching. I like it when it comes to presenting, I don't like telling people what to do because I very rarely profess to be right.
1: Mm, mm. And I love the other line that you always say is that when you are in front of an audience, While you can share your basketball stories, et cetera, uh, you always say, hey, but it's about you today.
2: Well, and that's it. I could tell three or four stories to start that has little influence or relevance to, to what they want to learn about. And I always think that they're great stories and have great lessons attached to them that people may relate to. But I want to know what they want to speak about, and oftentimes I'll find someone before the event, or I'll go and have a quick chat and get to know one or two people and pick something out so that I know when I go to question time. Okay, come on, I know you love basketball, and at the very least, let's talk about a game against or whatever it might be. Mm -hmm. But again, it's just conversational, and um, we get some of the real gold from the Q and A segment more so than we ever would if we put a slideshow on a board behind us. Mm, mm.
1: Speaking of slideshows, what, what do you think about the use of slides or, <laughs> or overuse of slides? Uh, look, we're,
2: it's, we get distracted. If I'm telling a story, I'm trying to listen to you and there's words on the wall, I'm probably going to read at some stage and I won't give you my full attention and vice versa. Um, so I, I like them visually. I, I think so many people are visual learners that photos and videos help, but one at a time.
1: hmm Well, you know, I'm going to ask for you to repeat one of the stories you shared with me yesterday. (laughs) Uh, We'll see what the audience comes, comes away with, but I, I really loved it on a number of levels, Um, but especially about accountability and and taking action. The one with Shaq, could you share?
2: Yeah. So I happened to sit in on a Zoom call with Shaquille O'Neal last week. Um, And he told a story about clearly he was one of the best basketball players ever. And hadn't yet won a championship when he went to LA Lakers and coach Phil Jackson, who is very famous for coaching the Chicago bulls and probably the methodology around doing that with regard to yoga and mental preparation and those kinds of things. He, he got check up to Montana and they were standing by Lake. he said, swim. He said, yeah, first of all, do you, do you trust me that if you, you do it how I say I can help you win that championship, I can help you become even better and shake said, I want to win. He said, swim. And so he got in, and by the time he came out, and Shaq knew it was a test, and he he knew there was going to be a lesson attached. We just didn't quite know exactly what it was. We said, "He's asked him, I'll do it. I'll prove that I'll do whatever he says." By the time he got out, Philip walked off, and he got up to me, said, I'll see you in LA," and that's all it was. It was genuinely, are you prepared to get a little bit uncomfortable and do something you don't know what the outcome is going to become, what the outcome is going to be yet? And, that was Shaquille O'Neal. I mean, there are a lot of egos in professional sport and a lot of people who don't give of themselves fully because of that ego and unwillingness to be uncomfortable, unwillingness to be embarrassed. Mm. And that's probably a big one. But that was Shaq and they went and won three championships in a row.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Fantastic. So let's go down that path. When you've got a champion, uh, a standout I use the word talent very sparingly, but how do you as a coach manage the superstar on the team? Like what are some of your experiences and what are some of the go-to, you know, coaching recommendations? Because in the workplace, you can have the same yep. situation where that one say sales rep is just crushing it. Like how do you manage that person within a team?
2: Well, as we said yesterday yesterday, I think a lot of it's done behind closed doors. It's not always done in front of the group and the conversations you have become very different as to where that player might end up getting to and the reasons that you're coaching. I always coach an artist. And when you're in a group environment, I've been around too many coaches who allow the best player to come down to the or just yell at the the, the player who can't quite get the skill component right. And, and that's a really easy thing to do. Um, but I always coach the best player the hardest because if I... Tell Emma Doyle who's the best basketball player on our team or instruct her or whatever I use in the heat of the moment, every other player hears as well. Mm. And I'm also coaching them when I'm coaching the best player. Whereas if I coach one of the, the boys or girls who's struggling and try to instruct them, it might not be relevant for half the team. So probably as much as anything though, I, I where I can, and you can't do it on game day, I like to drag the player aside and chat in their ear because no player likes to be embarrassed. Mm. And I think you can get, yeah, just bring them out of a drill for a second, whisper in their ear. You can complimentary, maybe the other way we talked about taking a photo yesterday, Yeah, you know, what do you see? And then players get into a conversation again. And so you can do it communally as well, but um, always coach the best player, the hardest.
1: Mm. Yeah. I love that advice. Cause you're, yeah, you're sharing the message, aren't you? Uh, to <laughs> everyone else indirectly when whatever they take from it. When you are playing, what about analytics and data and technology versus yeah. the the role of the coach? What are your look, just talk me through your yeah, thoughts v- on the that? Video,
2: video is great. I mean, mm. sometimes you can be told something a hundred times, but until you see it for yourself, mm. it doesn't quite make sense. Again, we're all pretty visual learners at some level. But there's a saying that I like, it's that statistics should be used like a drunk uses a lamppost for support, not illumination.
1: <laughs> and
2: I think there are so many statistics, there's so much data out there now that coaches will try to find something in the data that they haven't seen with their own eyes mm. um, and create training plans and, and, and create almost culture mm. a- around the data but they've got to do it around the people and find the supporting data to support or to support that, but also to go back to the players and say, Hey, here's where our improvement's coming or here's where we need it to come from. But to support, you can get lost in it. You can, the whole, you know, paralysis by analysis. There are so many players who don't deal well with so much information. I love keeping it simple. I just do. And as coaches, I th- we might've mentioned it yesterday, but it's, it's as much about what we don't teach the players as what we do because we can feel that we've got so many things and we do so much research and invest so much time into ways to do things better, Mm. but we don't have to actually display those skills or learn those skills with the players do. It's confusing. So we have to figure out what's most important. Interesting. I, I definitely think that one, you know, with the
1: rise in technology and it's moving at such rapid speeds that, I think coaches are in danger of losing their their jobs in the sporting world unless they can ask great questions, be super curious. We spoke about it in part one of this podcast. Be so fascinated about the person in front of you. A machine can never do that. Sure. And I, I love that. Uh, and, yeah, being able to see it for certain players, understand the data, because it still amazes me back in, in Chapter 1 of my life with, with tennis, how often practice – never really resembled what happens in a match. and also the tradition of tennis where you go and take a tennis lesson but you don't play yep. or the coach doesn't ever come and watch you play, which is yep. uh, opposite to a lot of sports. What about the the yelling basketball coach? What about yeah. the, the coach that's so passionate and where I'm going with this is your daughter. she's at UCLA here in the states playing basketball and as a parent like when you're watching other coaches coach your own kids and do you ever like want to jump in and and just go what you know you know what i how do you balance that it's
2: it's hard well it's it's not because i i just enjoy watching her play Mm -hmm. um and i never had any intention of coaching izzy but she actually asked me to do it and so she was the one i coached hardest and we had a few arguments and I, I did tell her again, there were tears and there were, but I was probably as invested in her as I've ever, well, I was, as anyone I've ever coached, because mm. I absolutely wanted the best for her. And sometimes I, I would have coached her too hard and said things to her probably more honestly than I would other players. Um, but for me, for her to be coached by someone else and hear another voice and just allow me to be dad again was great. Mm. So I'm very happy sitting there and letting it be someone else's job to to educate Izzy, but You still see things and you still see the game as a coach, but you do, you watch your daughter more and you don't watch the game as a whole quite as much. But, you know, there's something about giving advice when it's not asked for or requested that is annoying. And so I try to keep my advice to an absolute minimum unless she asks for it because she'll ask when she wants it Mm -hmm. um, but might not need it.
1: So then back to my first part of that question, what do you think yeah. of the, the basketball coach? Oh, yeah, sorry.
2: Oh, there, there are two parts to this. I don't mind a basketball coach that yells because sometimes that's what it takes to get your message across on the spot and you need to be loud. But as long as it's done, having developed that relationship, if you, if all you are is a yelly coach at training, then players sort of drop their shoulders and it becomes yeah. overbearing.
1: Tune out, don't they?
2: Yeah, um, but... If yelling is just raising your voice to make sure they hear and it's not anger and it might be urgency, then that's okay. Mm. Um, but it's got to be a blend, I, I still think. Even in a game, there's, there's still time to find a quiet second and hey, what did you see here? And this, I'd try this next time. But the, the contrast to that is when you get small again, the yelling parents are worse <laughs> because we've all seen the parents who sit on the sideline and yell out instructions. Mm to their players and I've sat beside and they're just wrong or they're absolutely contradicting, absolutely contradicting what the coach is saying. The players are confused. Mm. So as much as they think they're trying to help, they're creating so much harm in their own kids by yelling out what they think is support or advice. And it's opposite to what the coach is trying to teach. And so it becomes confusing. There are more than one voice in the, in the players' heads. So I'd always say to the parents, just sit and enjoy, just watch. And you might have the chance to ask a coach, like a teacher. We don't get to sit in the classroom with our kids and analyse every single thing Mm. that our children learn. But what if we did? We'd have a different opinion. Let the coach coach. Mm. Have a chat to them once in a while and see what they're doing and maybe get a clearer view. But sit in the crowd and just enjoy it. Mm. Cheer and support. Don't try to coach.
1: Speaking of advice what would you say to some, maybe some young coaches out there, maybe they're early in their coaching journey. What do you, do you personally have any things you, you do differently as a young, like what sort of advice can you give to those coaches who are beginning their journey? And is there anything in your career that you think I'd, I'd do that differently? Actually, how can we no, learn?
2: I, I think we have to have the right intent. And again, we always try to prove that we're capable of coaching. Honestly, it's with everything we do, I still think it, it, you have to drill down what you fundamentally believe are the most important pillars of a skill set and drill them and, and be great at fundamentals, great at conditioning. Because without that, you can't add the flair um, to the end of it. Whatever skill that is, you, you need to really drill down on the basics and make sure that these athletes have great habits. And once you get that right, is when you start understanding the player and you tweak, you don't completely overhaul, but you start tweaking and you start improving. But again, there always has to be a why, And I'd, I'd say that whenever you're coaching, don't only coach the what coach, the why, mm. because athletes want to know why you're changing their grip or lifting their elbow when they shoot. And, and this is where you can use data as support or video mm-hmm. as support, but have them understand why, because more often than not an athlete, won't just continually improve that they'll that they'll be ups and downs so when they're on their way down mm. it's really important when they've changed something that they need to know they're going to come out the other side a little bit better than what they were but again if they know the why that's an easier path to take
1: love that advice and what about that last three seconds left on the shot clock
2: in basketball <laughs> yeah.
1: did you ever want the ball
2: always um or oh, i wanted someone I, I wanted someone who i knew was capable of the best possible, but yeah, I did. Um, yeah. As a big, we don't get it as often. It's normally a guard that ends up with the ball in their hands, but again, it was just habit because I was used to having the ball in my hands, a lot of training. Um, but you know what, when I got to the Tigers, we had a bunch of guys who hadn't been allowed to because it was Gaze, Copeland, Bradkey, three really big names in Australian basketball. And the others very rarely touched the ball. And one of the things when I got there, hey, you got to shoot it. And they weren't used to actually being encouraged or told to be more aggressive, looking for their own shot. Like, Hey, you're all here because you're professional basketball players, not to support me or to support DMAC. You know, there's opportunity here for you guys to all be a lot better and have bigger roles.
0: Mm -hmm.
2: And it was, it was amazing the sort of change that was. Um, But that group from, if you look at them the year before to, we, we won championships and came runners up in championships with a very similar team, but the guys were great. Mm. And we talk about roles. My role was to have the ball in my hands a lot, but I couldn't have had it in the right spot without the others and there are a whole bunch of defence. And it always sounds like a cliche when you say it, but we had this incredible team that everyone got better mm. and that was special.
1: Yeah, definitely. You need everyone in that right moment to be in the right spot, don't you? Yeah, I love that. What what about what's you what do you think is some of your favorite analogies from sport into business?
2: Uh
1: and could be business into sport as
2: well. But oh, there are there are really so many. Yeah. Because to me sport is just like all well, it is, it's a job. And it's how you communicate with people, how you make people feel, uh how much work you do in your own time, um, the support you give your teammates or workmates and the, the thing with sport is we're measured every week or every weekend in in the workplace. Often we're not, we things are, are allowed to slide for months and months until they become impossible. Um, we tend to, <clears throat> we, tra- we tend to address things more quickly in mm, sport. Mm-hmm. A loss will allow us to address things. A win in a good team will allow us to address things again, go back to video. But I, I think the one common trait of every great team I've been on, we have real conversations.
1: Mm.
2: And it's not, I mean, you've all been in the workplace. Hey, how you going? Good thanks. You yeah, good. What are you doing? Nothing. Mm. And you move on. Right? And no one mm-hmm. cares.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, but it's actually sitting down and having real conversations and getting to know people away from work or away from sport and understanding how again go back to the gorge and how to support them as human beings, or not maybe not even support, but yeah. understand. Yeah. Um, yeah. people are fascinating mm-hmm. and yeah, I love being a part of groups where everyone comes from diverse backgrounds, different countries, places, upbringings, whatever. Mm. Because that's interesting. Mm-hmm. And then when you find all of these different skill sets and personalities, that's when you don't want a team in anything you do of people that are the same, I don't think. Mm. Um and you can only figure that out if you have genuine conversations, I think, yeah. and are actually genuine, genuinely invested mm-hmm. in getting to know them. But there are so many parallels. Like mm-hmm. they, you can pick anything. And mm-hmm. Maybe it's why I love sports so much and love talking about it like this. And of
1: course, uh, you wrote a book during COVID. I did.
2: I did. And, that, and that was it. It was There was so much negativity around. And as I sat back, and again, I, I love sharing stories. And that's why I wrote the book. I wanted mm-hmm. to tell stories. But I didn't want to write about myself. I wanted, to, I wanted to write about the great people that I'd come across in my career and what they'd taught me. And even as I wrote my book, some of the lessons I learned didn't happen until years after I experienced yeah, the, the lesson. So it, it was a lot of fun. Um, it was a lot of fun reconnecting with the people I wrote about to make sure that I remembered it accurately because sometimes it was 25 years ago um, or more. I was really fortunate to put myself around great people or to be around great people. And I, I choose to do that now. I I choose to put myself around incredible people and people who continue to teach me. There's a lot of people who don't or haven't. And and that's what I wanted to share that all of these lessons that I learned in sport. And that's why it's called tall tales, what the whiteboard never taught me because it's nothing that I learned on the basketball court or very little. It was what I learned around the team and from the people who are around it. So it was a, it was fun writing. It was fun connecting and the feedback's been really, really Mm -hmm. good. And I think people relate to some of the stories and there are genuine lessons in there that I think, you know, most people who read it will connect with a few of them. Absolutely. Highly recommend it. Uh, So what's next for you? Oh, There's there's a a very good question. I do events. I speak. Mm -hmm. Um, I may write another book. Um, I'll continue to coach I've learned the Tom. I've, I've learned the term portfolio career,
0: um,
2: <laughs> but I but I, I, I do a lot of writing now, and mm-hmm. I'm writing for a company called News Limited uh, on a long form media app called Code, um, and it's that it's long form storytelling in sport. It's not reporting. Mm-hmm. It's critically analysing what I see and the events that people go through. It's a lot of fun. Um, Yeah. There's a lot of short form media out there, out there at the moment. We don't see too many things in a lot of depth. So I like to bring a bit of depth to what I see Mm -hmm. um, and share that, which has Mm -hmm. been fun. But we spoke about it. Yes. Everything I'm doing comes back to storytelling. Mm -hmm. We're getting great people on stage to tell their story. Um, My writing, I hope tells a story. I'll tell stories when I coach, I'll tell stories when I present, Um, but I love doing it. Mm -hmm. Um, So what's next? I'll, I'll continue down this path for a little while longer and, We'll see what other door I come mm. across and might choose to walk through. But um, yeah, As it is now, I'll wake up every morning and do something just a little bit different. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I think that's what we have planned for today. That's Absolutely. for sure. <laughs> well, Chris Ancy, thank you so much for your time, your insights uh, and your honesty. Mm, every time we catch up, you're so real that it makes life fun. Thanks thank for having
0: you. me on, Ancy. The coaching podcast is brought to you by your energy and high performance under pressure coach, Emma Doyle. www.emmadoyle.com.au or email her info at The ball is in your court to take action and enjoy your coaching.